Hi, everyone. Today, me, Hellevorn, and Ren are going to be talking about Hellevorn's novel, Lucky Wolf, and how she did her historical research for it. This is going to be one of our first episodes for a series about how to do historical research for writing fiction. And the first question we have here is how are primary and secondary sources different? And especially when we're talking about the context of historical research. I think one really good way of putting it is that, um, you know, your primary resources are the word of mouth from the people who were there at that time and presumably spoke the languages. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's, you know, like in our cases with Judea and such, we have a lot of accounts from Romans who were ambassadors there, that kind of thing. Um, and secondary sources are um, people further along in time who are uh, looking back on those primary resources and um, and adding more context as we discover more con context about the culture and about the um, perspective of the primary resource based on new discoveries in archaeology and history. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And in writing historical fiction, which are more important generally? Um, well, I would say that especially for beginners, uh, the secondary sources are more important. So if we think about the primary sources as medieval writings, as it was in my case, and the secondary sources are the commentaries, the historical research, then I would say that it's, it is more important to first be familiar with the context of a piece of medieval literature before you start reading it. Because if you don't know much about um, the, um, um, the, the how medieval thinking functions, how the society functions, what are the tropes and the symbols and the styles in medieval literature, you might find yourself overwhelmed because uh, medieval literature or, uh, you know, religious writings, as it was in the case of Wren with uh, their um, research into the uh, Book of the Dead and Egyptian magical religious practices, um, there would be lots of, it, it would be overwhelming for a beginner. And uh, in my case, the corpus of Old Norse sagas is huge. We have, uh, you know, dozens, hundreds of, of sagas in Thetir, which are short stories. So, um, and they are quite convoluted in the way in which they are written. So, um, uh, it, it is a labyrinth, really. It is much better to read uh, secondary sources first with, with short excerpts of the primary sources. I totally agree. When I was a history major back in university, this was what I did because secondary sources can really help you cut down on what you need to get to. For example, if you're writing an essay and the same goes for a story because in both an essay and a story, you have main points you want to make, right? And I guess in the case of a story, it's more about characters and plot, but in the case of an essay, it's an argument. But in either case, you need to isolate and locate the main points you want to make and find supporting evidence for that. So you have to go through the existing literature, which is a term for, you know, the existing writings and scholarly articles that have already been published about that topic. And from there, go through the endnotes, the footnotes, and the bibliography to locate 
aspects and you know other further readings that are that can be primary or secondary that you can further look into to get a deeper reading into what you want to look into. For example, if you're reading a book about post-colonialism and you see a footnote, footnote 61, and then you look at it and it talks about something that you're interested in and that further elaborates on the sentence that's that you're, you've been looking at in the book, then you can go to that other source and look up more stuff. And from there, you can amass a very long list of resources, both primary and secondary that you can use for your resources. Because you can look up the footnotes of a footnote and of a footnote and just keep on building. Exactly. So these, uh, um, this research is basically explanations of the text. So this uh, may seem like a, a great effort to uh, to read into, especially if you're not a historical uh, a historian. Sorry, but um, they really do help in explaining uh, the uh, the text itself. Absolutely. I agree with you. I think it's very important, especially as beginning writers, for us to understand the context of um, of those events or or that culture, um, rather than trying to to reach for the thing itself. Almost like a language, like we have to understand why the rules of the grammar work before we can really understand what we're saying to people. So I think that's a very good point. Mm -hmm. So writing an outline, kind of like those outlines you do for university when they're like, hey, write an outline for the essay that you're going to be submitting that makes up 30% of your mark. Writing outlines for your stories, not just about the plot, but about points you want to research into can really help as well. For example, um, Tete has actually been writing a lot of outlines for some of her future works, including the one about Kai and Gerda. And, you know, she's been making points about which need to be further expanded or changed in the future in case, you know, existing research proves that this may not have happened or maybe this is not the best way for it to have happened in that context. Absolutely. Right. And how reliable is it to just Google a topic versus, you know, using JSTOR or Google Scholar or, you know, these books with a lot of endnotes and footnotes? Well, if I could put my two cents in, I think that Google can be helpful, but like any tool, you really need to know how to use it because it will bring up stuff that is not relevant. Um, Helleborn had mentioned that if you try asking it for, um, asking Google for rune, uh, rune scrying, it's going to bring up modern practitioners and how they interpret the art of um, rune divination. Whereas that's not going to help us in the long run because we're looking for the closest thing we can get to um, a, a historical account of how did they practice this in their time. And um, so it's important to, you know, when you're looking, I think especially when you're looking through your results to check and just be, you know, do, that's your homework is to make sure that you're getting the sources you want and you're getting um, that, you're, that your results are what you're actually looking for. And that's a struggle with just plain old Google. Mm -hmm. That's true. So we have to make sure that uh, what we read cites actual uh, primary sources and that it cites as many sources as possible, that the author of that writing has done their homework, so to speak, in their turn, that they have, um, you know, because the, the, the more uh, research you read, the clearer is the picture that you get. 
So um, this is the, the same for you and for the authors of the, uh, um, the, the, the articles and the websites that we find online. But this, of course, doesn't mean that Googling isn't good and that Wikipedia doesn't help even and that we don't find, you know, on YouTube, there are plenty of people who really know uh, these, uh, these topics. For example, I, I learned a lot from one uh, YouTuber, uh, Dr. Jackson Crawford, who speaks about uh, Old Norse language and culture. And he is the uh, professor at um, University of Colorado Boulder and California Berkeley. So I, I've been listening to him a lot and I found him, you know, by Googling uh, Old Norse topics. Exactly. So Googling can help, you know, contrary to what some teachers who mostly are outdated imply and say, oh, you can't use Wikipedia or Google, but it's more complicated than that. It's just that you have to use it in a way that will further your interests, not just, oh, okay, let's just type in whatever. And then you find the first person that talks about it, who is like, you know, as you said, some random practitioner who is just doing it because, you know, they want social media clout and it's not based on history or, you know, some random old site that's like Geocities, you know, 2001 <laughs> era with really pixelated <laughs> images saying, oh, you know, this is what the, those people did back then in the 19th century. And there's no citation and you don't even know who the person who posted this is. <laughs> exactly. Super sus. Um, <laughs> but I think another point to that then becomes... Um, when we're looking at the sources that they're citing, and I think that Wikipedia and those kinds of things can give you an idea of what you want to look for. Like if you're like, where do I even begin? Those can be a great point to be like, okay, so these are the things that come with the subject I'm researching. What do I want to look at first? What do I think I can digest first? Or what's, what's most pertinent to me right now, as opposed to just diving into this, you know, the, the ocean that is the internet of information. Like there's just so much. I think that Google and we, Wikipedia can just start us with a very general, where do I want to start? Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's a really great way of putting exactly. it. So for Halivorn, can you give us some examples of how you did historical research from Lucky Wolf? Um, which scenes are heavily researched, for example, and how did you use primary and secondary sources to create them? Yes, well, um, this is a complex uh, question because I've done, uh, I had done a lot of research before starting to write Lucky Wolf because I've been um, interested in Norse culture for many, many years. So I already had a good basis to begin with. But uh, what actually uh, inspired me to write about a male practitioner of magic was um, from a saga. It is the saga of uh, Harald Ferher. And uh, there was, a, there was um, a fragment about a male practitioner of magic. And um, um, I can share with you uh, my screen to see an excerpt from, this is actually the excerpt that I have from, um, uh, it is a secondary source. So it's called uh, Wizards and Words, the Old Norse Vocabulary of Magic in a Cultural Context. And I'm going to read the, uh, the excerpt. 
And as you can see, we have the fragment in Old Norse, and then it is translated by the author of this book. And the name of the, um, the, the practitioner of witchcraft is Rögenwald Rettelbeini. He had power over Hadaland, which is a region in Norway. He learned magic and became a sorcerer. King Harald disliked sorcerers. In Hordaland, there was a sorcerer named Vitgeir. The, uh, please tell me if you can see a new picture. Can you see a new one? Yeah. No, I can't. It's the same or, one. Or is it is it the same one? Okay, sorry. So then uh, I will just share my whole screen because it's easier. Okay. Oh, see. So the king sent him a message and asked him to quit sorcery. And he answered by a verse. So he answered by a verse and he says that uh, basically, well, there is an even greater sorcerer in our country and this is your son, King. And so when King Haraldr heard this, Eirik, Eirik Bloodax, uh, went to Upland on his behalf and burned his brother Rögenvalr in his house together with 80 other sorcerers. And this deed was praised greatly. So from here, we learned that uh, male practitioners of magic were often very influential in the region, like this Rögenwald Rettilbeini, and uh, their presumably political influence uh, upset the king so much that he had his own son killed, and uh, 80 other sorcerers along with him. Um, so this is what really sparked my interest. And I started reading more and more about this topic and about why male practitioners were particularly shunned. And so I, uh, I came up with, uh, well, you know, th this is actually an excerpt of one of my own um, research papers on male practitioners of Sather. And um, it is a selection of things that I found uh, particularly uh, significant. And um, uh, I, I've talked about some of these things in, in previous podcasts, but um, so I, I'm not going to read through all of it, but we see that um, male practitioners appear in a lot of sagas. Um, the, the, son of, the saga of Harald Fairhair, of Olaf Tryggvason, of uh, Gisla Sursonar, and um, they, they even, um, um, they are always treated very, um, with, with a lot of uh, fear and hostility. And, um, and this is probably because, um, and I, I, I wrote here, uh, what exactly makes say that a womanly preoccupation is subject to exegetic speculation considering the lack of conclusive sources. One theory sends to the distinct outfit of a vulva, whose assimilation by a man would make him a cross-dresser and indicated a type of sexuality, homosexuality, blamable in our society, specifically when it involves adapting a passive sexual role, as suggested in saga literature and the etymology of uh, the insult words for a homosexual man. And so, of course, this image of, uh, um, of, of a male practitioner of magic is very influential and very able as a politician as well, and someone that a king himself would fear because he can potentially 
intentionally gather so many people around him that he can um, raise um, uh, a revolt of the people against the king. And he's also a cross-dresser and he is um, very unconventional. And so I started to build upon this and this is how Eolf came to be. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Thanks. It it is, it is. It is, you know, it's really interesting how all of this research really helped you to character build him. Yeah, that's true. And and I added more and more details, but this is basically uh, how I started. So it was that that fragment from a saga, and then I started trying to find on those websites that you mentioned, you know, JSTOR, ResearchGate, and Academia, and, you know, Google Books and everything. I started research everything I could find on the topic of male practitioners of magic. Right. And after this, you entered him into OC training to develop him as a character more than, you know, a concept, right? An academic concept. Yeah, exactly. So I started to to build upon his personality, yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So you mentioned previously that Eolf's riddles in Chapter 5 are based on actual medieval riddles, right? So this is another thing you did a lot of research into and used primary resources for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is true. And uh, um, in uh, chapter five, Trickster, uh, the one that you did a reading of uh, Fortune's Games, um, we have two riddles. And um, I'm going to, uh, to read through them quickly. And I said, okay, this is the first one. It dangles at... Oh, no, sorry. Uh, Two maidens on a peak I see in a meadow making love, woman seducing woman until one of them gives birth, though neither has a husband. Who might they be? So this is Eolf uh, saying this uh, kind of body riddle about, um, you know, to to women, which really fits with his uh, personality and he's bisexual himself. So this riddle is actually a fragment from the saga of uh, Herver and Heydrich. And uh, I'm going to show you how, um, how it looks like. Okay, so this is a, um, um, this is uh, a translation of the exact riddle from um, Old Norse. What women are they on the wild mountain? Woman by woman begets, a girl by a girl begets a son, yet no men do these maidens know. This riddle ponder opens Heydrich because there is a, a mysterious character who is Odin himself and he comes in disguise to uh, King Heydrich and he tells him this riddle. And the, the king answers, your riddle is good, Gestumblindi. I have guessed it. These are two Angelicas and a young Angelica between them. And um, this is a riddle about plants, about herbs, right? Which is also one uh, topic that Eolf is very much interested in as a uh, medieval doctor, so to speak. And we can see here the footnote, important because otherwise, maybe I wouldn't even know what Angelica is. And it says, 
A young angelica shoot growing up from the same root as the other full-grown stalks. A species of angelica is common in the far north of Europe and was much used for flavoring. In Olaf Saga Trivasonar, it is mentioned as being sold in the market at Nidaros, which was the Trondheim, the capital of Norway at the time. So another interesting thing. So um, um, of course, Eolf would say such a riddle. And the other riddle, it is, of course, another uh, potentially obscene one with a sexual double entendre like this one. And it says, it, this is from my book. Uh, it dangles at a lad's waist, hard and stiff under his shirt. It longs to enter that secret hole that it has visited many times before. Of course, the two ladies that Eolf says this to think about uh, male genitalia, but uh, this one is more interesting. The answer is a key, and it is not an Old Norse riddle, but an Old English one. It is from the Exeter book, riddle number 44, and this is how it actually sounds in translation. A strange thing hangs by a man's thigh, hidden by a garment. It has a hole in its head. It is stiff and strong, and its firm bearing reaps a reward. When the man hitches his clothing high above his knee, he wants the head of that hanging thing to poke the old hole of fitting length it has often filled before. So, um, of course, it is meant as something humorous, um, even, well, especially at the time in the Middle Ages. So, yes, it is a key and not what the ladies were thinking of. It definitely sounds like something Eilf would say, right? So why did I choose an uh, old... English one, um, uh, apart from the Old Norse one? Well, first of all, because um, these are two very similar cultures at the time. The language is similar and um, there were frequent um, borrowings from one culture to another. So uh, it is possible, why not, that um, they had um, compared that the Norse people had compared keys to penises themselves or that Eolf heard this riddle from an Englishman because uh, the languages were mutually understandable. So if Eolf, uh, who lives in uh, the, the capital of Norway, met an English sailor, maybe they shared riddles, right? Because he's interested in riddles. So yeah, why not? Right, exactly. Right. That's an interesting point. So Aiden, I, I guess this is not really related, but you brought up language. So it's just a quick point. So Aiden actually would understand Ingvar, right? He doesn't need that much learning in, in you know, old Norse to be able to communicate. Yes, definitely. And the more exposed you are to, to languages, um, the, the better you can understand and make the um, right analogies in order to understand a, a different language. So yes, it is just quite mutually understandable. Right. So I think it's only after the Norman invasion that English changed so much, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. So moving on to our next question. Yeah, Lucky Wolf has some scenes of healing and herbalism, similar to what you've covered with you know, the Angelica and the Riddle. Where does this information about herbalism come from? Uh, yes, that's a good question. And um, there is this, um, this 
book that I found and it really, really helped me a lot. Uh, and it is called, sorry, I'm going to quickly go through my notes. It's called, uh, okay, I, I cannot find it. I, it, it is, uh, I think Anglo-Saxon, uh, no, English, English Medicine in Anglo-Saxon Times. Uh, by Frank uh, Payne. And um, it is about the uh, Leech Book of Bald, which is one of the most uh, important sources for medieval Anglo-Saxon medis medicine and also the Anglo-Saxon charms, um, which are um, often used as um, in, in healing practices. So, for example, I'm going to uh, to talk about this one for wounds because uh, there is a scene in uh, my book where Ingvar and Eolf talk about healing wounds and they make a salve. And this is actually where I got it from. And it says, for wounds in general, there is a very efficient ointment. And now the quote is from the actual um, uh, medicine. Work a good wound salve thus. Take yarrow and the nether part of woodruff, feldmore, which is wild carrot, and the nether part of sigilworth. Boil in good butter, wring through a cloth, and let it stand. Pretty well every wound thou mayest cure therewith. So this is exactly the salve that Eolf and Ingvar make in, uh, um, in that chapter. And we see them, you know, mixing the butter in and wringing uh, the, uh, the salve through a piece of cloth until it is dry and it dries up and they make an ointment which Eolf then gives to Ingvar. So he basically teaches Ingvar how to make it. And this was my, my source for the chapter now entitled Garden. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the same chapter, they talk about wounds of the skull and the treatment of accidents, because it is related to uh, uh, a moment in Ingvar's childhood, quite a traumatic one. And uh, it is from the same book. It says, for broken head, take betony, bruise it, and lay it on the head above. Then it unites the wound and healeth. Again, for the same, take garden crest, that which waxeth of itself and is not sown. So the wild one. Um, put it in the nose that the smell and the juice may get to the head. So these are some of the plants that Eilf mentions in that um in that uh, chapter and comfrey, which closes fractures of the skull. This, this is again, something uh, that I found in this book. So uh, this is how I, how, how I decided what plants would Eolf have in his garden and what use they are from. And of course, from this, I researched what uh, herbs he would have access to, right? Which of them grow in Norway, which would be imported. So uh, I did some more research beyond this. This book in general was so, so interesting to read. It, it's one of my favorite things because uh, it has a lot of, uh, of really fun things, you know, like um, 
it um uh oh for example how to how to cure lunacy it says in case a man be month sick take skin of merse wine which is a porpoise make it into a whip switch him therewith mm -hmm. soon will he be well amen so, right. <laughs> beating people until they become well that's really nice and also really bizarre things with take uh take out the eyes of a crab uh, while the crab is still alive and tie these eyes onto your wrist for example and then your wrist will be cured so these are so funny i loved it <laughs> right and moving on to our next example is ingvar um are his tattoos historical because in lucky wolf we really see eolf being intrigued by his tattoos i think this kind of adds to the intrigue that eolf senses from him and he feels very attracted to the fact that ingvar is a man of mystery with these tattoos yes indeed so uh for for the tattoos, well, uh, if we look at a uh, piece of uh, um, Old Norse, uh, well, well, fiction inspired by Old Norse, such as the Vikings TV show, we'll see that everybody has tattoos in that TV show. But in fact, there are only two sources that say that Norse people had tattoos, and those are Arab writers. So it's Ahmad ibn Fadlan and Ibrahim ibn Yaqob al-Tartushi. I hope that I read them well. But what I want to say is that only Arab people mention that Norse people had tattoos. So we can draw several conclusions for the, from this. Um, maybe it was those types of Germanic people that uh, these two men met, um, the, um, uh, the Rus, the, the people in Kievan Rus, uh, who were of Norse origin, but they were not living in Scandinavia at the time, and also the um, the other writer writes about the um, uh, a town uh, somewhere between Germany and Denmark, so they are not actually people in Scandinavia, so maybe those people were influenced, uh, well, they had Eastern influences, right, because there is no mention in uh, saga literature, for example, of any Icelander living in Iceland or you know, Norwegian or something having tattoos. So what I did was uh, explain Ingvar's tattoos by the fact that uh, he went to Kievan Rus and he spent a great deal of time um, on the shores of the Baltic Sea. He traveled a lot. So he might have met people with tattoos and he really loved the idea of them. So this mm -hmm. is why not all of my characters have tattoos, but only uh, people who went to those Eastern places and, uh, you know, some liked them and some didn't. Even in our time, we don't all have tattoos, right? <laughs> exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And similarly, about Ingvar's bedsheets, you mentioned that he traveled with his beautifully embroidered blue bedsheets. Did anyone do this? Or is this also kind of like historical conjecture like you did with his tattoos? 
<laughs> yes, this actually seems like, you know, uh, some, some detail um, that's uh, completely irrelevant, but uh, I actually put it in because I, I saw it in a saga. I think it was two sagas, but I don't remember the first one. The first one was about a, a woman actually traveling with her bedsheets, and the other was Erbiga um, Saga, where there is a woman who has such beautiful bedsheets that um, after she dies, um, you know, everybody envies them, even the Jarl's wife. And so she wants to have the woman's bedsheets, even though she wanted her bedsheets to be burned after her death. And so the, uh, the Jarl's wife takes the bedsheets and sleeps in them, and then she will become cursed and she will be haunted. This is a ghost story. It is one of the, uh, the supernatural sagas. So I thought, okay, who do we know who would have, um, who would want to travel with their own bed sheets and they would have very rich and nice and fine looking bed sheets. Um, and of course it is Ingvar because he's a very eccentric man and he is, uh, you know, obsessed with, uh, uh, with uh, cleanliness and he would not want to sleep in other people's bed sheets, especially if they are, you know, lower quality and not as washed as his own are. So, so this is how I, how I decided to, to, to write in that little detail about Ingvar. Right. And I think in the context of this, it was because Hildegun and Eolf were talking about how he always brought his own bed sheets everywhere. And Eolf was like, oh, I think it's because he doesn't like the fact, you know, that I do so many uh, things he would consider unclean in those bed sheets. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So if I wrote that in this little detail, then of course I wanted to write other people's opinion because it is not something that uh, you know that that people normally do. It is a sign of his eccentricity, and so Eolf uh, and Hildigun talk about it. And exactly, just um, a moment, Hildigun says. He's weird. He travels with his own embroidered bedsheets wherever he goes. Hell, even his blue pillows stuffed with goose feathers. Who does he think he is? The Holy Roman Empress? She shrugged, utterly revolted. Are our bedsheets not good enough? Eilf chuckled. People who sleep in our bedsheets do dirty things, Hildegun. He must have sensed that. <laughs> and that kind of foreshadows how Ingvar has an aversion to sexuality. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and people in general, because he would not want to sleep where uh, someone else has slept, someone else who's probably not as washed as he is in his point of view. Mm -hmm, exactly. As we can see in some later scenes where he actually thinks about people's bodies and how dirty they are, and then he kind of almost has a panic attack. That's true. So he finds other people and especially the, the bodily aspects really uh, revolting in general. Right. So that's all the examples for today. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining everyone. And, you know, Ren and uh, Hellevorn, this has been amazing. You know, we learned so much and we're going to be learning so much more in our future podcasts about how to do historical research. Thank okay. you so much. This has been really fun for me as well. Mm -hmm, right. So see you guys next time. Thanks so much for having us. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye.